Well, welcome, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's Grand Rounds at the Norriscon Cancer Center. My name is Brian Pogue from the Center for Imaging Medicine. Uh, it's a pleasure to introduce Sunil Singhal today, who's coming from the University of Pennsylvania. Um, welcome to those in the room. I need to say this, and welcome to those watching remotely. Uh, in terms of conflict of interest, Dr. Sunil will, does not have any financial interests. He does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. So. Again, it's, it's a pleasure to introduce him. Uh, I look at the list of things that he does at the University of Pennsylvania, and I think he has more titles than fingers on his hands, actually. Uh, he's the William Maul Measy Associate Professor in Surgical Research. He's a member of the Immunology Research Program at the Abraham, Abramson Cancer Center, uh, attending surgeon, at hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, um, Veterans Affairs Medical Center, He's the Chief Division of Thoracic Surgery at the Veterans Affairs. Um, he is Director of Thoracic Surgery Research Lab at the University of Pennsylvania. And most recently, he's the Director of the Center for Precision Surgery, which I think he'll be telling us about today at the Abramson Cancer Center. Um, he's the Surgical Director of the Penn Plural Center at UPenn and Vice Chair for Translational Research. Uh, Interestingly, I just realized this morning as he came that he has a BA in physics and mathematics from Dartmouth College. So he's no stranger to the Upper Valley. That's, you know, you know how important that is that there's just sort of a, a green hug around you when you're a Dartmouth grad. Um, <laughs> and he received his MD from University of Pennsylvania, uh, went on to intern at Johns Hopkins, uh, was resident general surgery at Johns Hopkins, research fellow in uh, cancer molecular training program at UPenn, uh, has done a series of different stints, surgical registrar at the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, became chief resident of general surgery at Johns Hopkins, uh, was a fellow in cardiothoracic surgery at UPenn, and uh, then a fellow in the cardiothoracic surgery center at Mary uh, Lungenlong Hospital in France. Uh, so he really, has incredible history, and I don't want to take any more of his time, so please welcome Thank him. Thank you. This works. Does this work? Yep. Great. Thank you for the introduction. It's been fantastic to come back uh, to visit. I'm going to talk a little bit today about where I see cancer surgery heading over the next 10 years, maybe even faster than that. Before, I have no disclosures. I did put this picture in um, coming up here because I'm very proud of my Dar Dartmouth heritage. Um, and actually, it's interesting because some of the people who, um, I'm just going to see if this is, this is not a pointer. That's okay. So this is Professor LaBelle. He's chief, uh, he's, uh, excuse me, he's chief. He's uh, chair of physics at, at Dartmouth now. I actually was in his lab. I actually started working in optical physics under John um, Kidder here, who I just heard recently died, but he, uh, I, I did my work in lasers, and my thesis was in lasers and optical physics, so it, it's ironic how 24 years later I'm actually doing research in that. Here's the Wilder building, the physics building of the physics math geek, so I used to hang out there a lot, and, um, and here's a picture of the green, and the other thing is I was a swimmer, so that was my other passion while I was here. I went down this morning and watched the swim team practice this morning. It was great. And the only picture I could find of myself in my entire four years of Dartmouth is from my swim team picture. 
and that's me um, at our Christmas training ground. So, um, so a little bit about cancer surgery. As most of you know, 1.7 million people each year develop cancer in the United States. Now, if you take cancer as a whole, uh, 880,000 people go for cancer surgery, and that's because it works. Now, if you look at all cancer, not including, this is solid tumors, by the way, my talk. We're not talking about lymphomas and leukemias. If you qualify for surgery in the United States with any cancer, including stage dependence and everything, the chance of living is 60%. So that's your five-year survival. If you can't qualify for surgery for a solid tumor in the United States right now, your chance of cure is about 5%. So once the cat's out of the bag and you can't resect it, the, the prognosis is dismal. And that's a good thing about surgery. Right? As surgeons, we want to cut things out. And it works because of two reasons. One, we have to make sure we completely remove the tumor, but also we are accurately staging that patient. We're identifying lymph nodes, we're identifying margins, and that way we're making sure that the patient gets the appropriate therapy, whether it's uh, chemotherapy or radiation therapy. Now, the problem is, why aren't surgeons, we always like to over-excel, uh, why aren't we 100%? Why do we still lose 40% of our patients? Well, part of it is obviously systemic metastases that we don't know about, but I, there's a 20% in there that's actually due to cancer cells that we left behind within two centimeters of where we were operating. So we're actually failing locally. So what are the biggest challenges? Well, this is an example of a case I did. Let's see this. You can see this mouse. So here you can see this tumor. This is an apical lung cancer that was invading into the neck. So after I resected this tumor, you can see I took out the clavicle. I reconstructed the artery took part of the venous structures. How do I know at the end of this case I, have, I haven't left a few cancer cells behind? <clears throat> and all it takes is a couple cancer cells for this to come back. Another challenge for us is venous stenoscopy, where we harvest lymph nodes. And, you know, we go in, we start harvesting these lymph nodes, but after a couple biopsies, it gets bloody. I'm not sure if I took it all. I, I definitely, I probably get a sampling more than a total dissection. So these are some of the big challenges that we have and as we started thinking, as I started thinking about this, there were four big areas, I believe, that we all, as surgical oncologists, we all struggle with, whether you're an ortho, GYN, onc, uh, surgical oncology, thoracic oncology. We, worry, we, we struggle with positive margins at the time of surgery. We struggle with identifying residual disease after we've done the resection. We have trouble locating small nodules. So, so whether it's a DCI, for, for in breast cancer, it's DCIS. In lung cancer, now it's adenocarcinoma in situ or uh, MIA. And then there's also the issue of finding uh, synchronous lesions, finding uh, people, uh, small little uh, synchronous lesions or, or metachronous lesions at the time of the surgery. So, um, and, and the reason we have this problem is because as surgeons, we only have our hands and eyes. We have very limited tools in the operating room to make uh, some very big decisions. And nothing has changed in the OR in 200 years. If you really look at it since the days of Hall said, nothing has changed. We're still using cold steel in the OR to make, uh, to make cuts and make big, big decisions. So we really had a simple hypothesis that targeted intraoperative molecular imaging uh, could improve outcomes for, for, uh, for thoracic surgeons. And so I think based on the audience, I'm going to skip over a few slides, but I'll give you some key highlights. I'm going to go mainly to the translational side because I do want to show you how we've started to make an impact. We've actually done almost 900 patients on clinical trials now on intraoperative imaging, and I'm going to give you a flavor for some of the applications. But a little bit of the basic science is I'm talking about three different things when I talk about the research we're doing. And 
You know, it's embarrassing to talk about some of these topics with Brian Pogue in the audience because I, 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 I assume most of you know he is one of the world's experts on intraoperative imaging. Uh, and so he, he can chime in and correct me or, or add his insight into some of these topics. But first, we have optical contrast agents. So we have agents that we give into patients intravenously. So this is not dyes that we're injecting into the tumor. This is not intratumoral administration. These are dyes that are given four hours to 24 hours to the patient intravenously. And then the issue is how do we deliver them and what are the, some of the devices that we can see? These are near-infrared dyes for the most part. So when I say near-infrared, it's just beyond the detection of the human eye. If you were a dog, you could see it. But if you're a human, you're gonna, you're gonna be, it's going to be outside your, your, your eye uh, view. So something about the contrast agents, I think this is the one, one of the most fundamental concepts. And it's very important to understand. People ask me all the time, why do you think this is going to succeed? Why is surgeons going to succeed in this space? And it's because of this. So if you think about all the big companies, Pfizer, Merck, um, Johnson & Johnson, making oncology drugs, they're really working on the, on the therapeutics. And in therapeutics, if you're a, if you're a, uh, a, um, a company making the oncology drug, you want to make sure if you give a drug that you kill, you don't want to kill a single normal brain cell, for example, if you got a brain tumor. You may only kill 50% of the brain tumor, but you can't really afford to kill not a lot of normal brain cells. The beautiful thing about image-guided surgery is we don't really care about specificity. We really want to be extraordinarily sensitive. I want to make sure at the end of the case that my tracer went to every single cancer cell because I am smart enough, I have enough intuition in the OR to know that as long as the thing next to the cancer is not fluorescing or glowing, that I, I can completely resect the tumor. I don't care if the kidney is glowing. I don't care if the choroid plexus is glowing. I don't care what these off-target effects are. I just want to make sure that the discrimination that between the, the border of the tumor and the thing next to it is clean. And so that really requires a short sense of And the bar for this is much lower than if I were an oncology drug or an oncology company trying to develop a therapeutic. And I think this is a key point, and it's philosophically the way I think about this, and it opens up a lot of doors. So I'm going to skip a lot of this stuff. These were some of the things that we talked about when we were working on tracers and drugs and trying to figure out how to develop the best tracers uh, to inject into, uh, into people uh, and go to the OR. I'll tell you some of the things, some of the, some of the concepts we did think about. One was brightness. So obviously the OR has a lot of issues. There's a lot of bright lights. Uh, we're having problems, believe it or not, with the anesthesia monitor. So we wanted something very bright that would not uh, bleach in the OR. And we also wanted something that would not, uh, that would survive the environment of the tumor. The tumor is a very, mouse tumors were easy when we first started, but when we got into humans, it's a very complex tumor milieu. There's, uh, the, P, the pH can be as low as 6.8. There can be all sorts of macrophages coming through, immune infiltrates cleaning up that tumor. Um, and then we wanted something very small. We wanted it non-toxic. We wanted to wash it out. I was reading actually one of Pogue and Rosenthal's article coming up here that, you know, they were putting the bar at less than 20% for any grade one, grade two toxicities. I mean, you cannot have any toxicity with some of these contrast agents. We were working with endosine green for a long time, and this is to scale. This is an antibody here, and this is there. You can see this tiny little molecule. So we're talking about really tiny particles, and this has only become possible now more and more as we move into nanotechnology. And then I was working with some great chemists along the way, uh, and we, again, I wanted to, then the next question became, 
Um, how do we deliver this dye? How do we deliver this dye to the tumor? And there's three basic concepts that are being used uh, in, in optical imaging. Though there are others forming, but these are the basic three concepts. The first is this concept of EPR, blood flow and retention. And the basic idea is that tumors, uh, um, when they form, they produce a lot of VEGF. They produce new capillaries, new arteries, new veins, but they don't form lymphatics. Uh, the lymphatics get compressed on the outside, but tumors don't form lymphatics. And because of that, there's a pressure gradient in tumors. It's a 10-millimeter pressure gradient. It's not much, but it's enough that if you give nanoparticles or you give small particles, that they tend to retain in the interstitium. And it's not clear they retain because they bind proteins or because of it's a polarity issue, but they retain in the protein. So that opens the opportunity for giving nanoparticles that are fluorescent. And one of the critical observations we made in our lab was that if you take standard fluorophores, if they're the right size, maybe less today than 1,000 Daltons, that if you wait, so things, for example, like endosinine green, if you wait 10 minutes, it's a great perfusion agent. We're all used to using endosinine green. Da Vinci, for people who do robotics, we do it with Firefly. But if you wait 24 hours, you continue to... Uh, bring the fluorophore into the tumor. It, it retains whether it forms J aggregates and a whole host of possible ideas, but it does clear out of the background. And you can get actually even a 10 to 100-fold increase in collection of fluorescent nanoparticles in tumors purely by this, um, by this EPR effect. And so we, we worked heavily on this um, when I was, my first four or five years, trying to figure out the mechanism behind this. And endosinine green was a great choice for us because it's been around since 1958. People use it for angiography. Um, but we started to see that it was more than that. It was a great fluorescent targeting uh, molecule. The second mechanism that we can deliver some of these dyes is by uh, selective activation. So cafepsin, there's uh, the pH nanotransistors, there's ways, the properties about the molecule that when the, the, dye, the dye by itself is not fluorescent, but when it gets there, it can get cleaved or activated, and then it can start fluorescing. And the classic example of that these days is ALA, which is uptaken, and it's part of the iron metabolism of brain cells. And then the last concept would be targeting. Uh, using either antibodies or um, antibodies to target, and we have used this quite extensively, for example, in lung cancer. So lung cancers express about a thousand-fold uh, more folate receptor than normal, uh, normal lung epithelium. So it's expressed in other parts of the body, kidney, choroid like plexus, like I said, but again, I don't care about that because I'm not operating in those areas. I just got to make sure that the normal lung next to the tumor doesn't fluoresce. And so this was the uh, targeting mechanism that we really focused on in our lab over the last decade. <laughs> and so the third challenge was, uh, this is where my optical physics Dartmouth training came to use, is starting to work with spectroscopy. So in order to detect these particles in tumors, we started using uh, basically a, a handheld spectroscopy unit in the, in the OR. We could sterilize the wand, and then we could begin to detect cancer cells uh, right within the organ. And as we became a little bit more sophisticated, we started developing optical visualization. This was my very first camera that we built literally out of $2,000. Can, you can build it tomorrow. You can start doing this yourself. We published on how to do this with a very simple optical system. But we actually did our first 50 patients on this little system. 
We became a little bit more sophisticated. Now at Penn, we, we basically took these two, the, these two cameras that has a dichroic mirror and a, and a uh, lens here, a zoom, and an external light source. And this was actually the very first optical system um, that was being used at Penn for the first three years before the Novodak and the Spy and the other companies now have started to flood the market. And so we were basically doing a, a near-infrared versus a, uh, a, a bright field image. And this is what it was. It was literally, we built a periscope out of the roof, uh, or the ceiling. It would come down, and the surgeon could position it over the chest. And then when we were operating, we would be able to see both here the bright field and the near-infrared. And then we, I was working on a thoracoscope for quite some time. We had a lot of technical issues with that. But really, at this point, it's irrelevant because some companies have come out. And this was some of the work we were doing. So I wanted to get to this point. I want to switch focus now and talk a little bit about how we've used this technology of injecting a patient with a dye before surgery, going to the OR, and how we, are we feel that we are beginning to change the way surgery is performed. And I'm going to give you some case examples. I'm going to talk about lung cancer, thymomas, mesothelioma. I'm not going to talk about esophageal cancer today just for time. I'm not going to talk about photodynamic therapy, which is using energy to excite these uh, molecules uh, to kill cancer cells. So let's talk about lung cancer. It, this is the number one killer uh, cancer killer in the United States. 250,000 people get it. Um, and the, I'll just skip this here. So I want to give you an example here. So this is a 73-year-old woman, and she came in with a six-millimeter nodule right here. It's a very small nodule. She wanted it out. Typically, for a six-millimeter nodule like this, we would not resect this. We would sit tight. She wanted it out. This was her second. She already had lung cancer. She knew what the future held. She wanted it out. And so I, to a room of thoracic surgeons, I know we, we have a couple of thoracic surgeons. I always show the CAT scan so people will believe me. You can see this. I'll show it to you here. I'll run through it one more time. It's the tiniest little nodule. And you're going to be saying, well, how am I ever going to, if I can play that again, it's going to be right here. And you're like, well, how am I ever going to find that without having to make an incision or put my finger in? So, so this is what it would typically look like. I put in my scope. Here's the lower lobe. Here's the upper lobe. Non-smoker, pretty pink lungs. There's no puckering. Um, I always ask thoracic surgeons, uh, do you think you can see where it is? Some people will point to this little brown spot. It's not this brown spot. So it's a pretty good-looking lungs. Not very easy. At this point, you're probably going to have to put a little incision to put your finger in to feel it. But so, and, and this is a major issue because there's no good solution for this. People have talked about using wire guidance. They've talked about e-bus, inking. The problem is most of us, what, what do we do? We make an incision. We try to feel it. We either do a gigantic wedge or we do a segment. We don't have a great solution for these crown glass opacities, and they're on the rise. And the, and the problem of getting a frozen on these is extraordinarily hard because the pathologists at our institution don't want to cut into it. If it's a 6-millimeter nodule, they don't want to cut into it, and they don't want to do a frozen. And so what we've basically done is use this folate receptor trick with lung adenocarcinoma, attached a fluorophore to it, just a standard near-infrared dye. This was a non-off-patent dye, the SO486. And we inject it systemically. It goes to the lung cancer, and the moment that exposed to light, it starts fluorescing. And we worked extensively with Phil Lauer Purdue, the chemist, and developed this dye. And here's the molecule. So here's an example. We started doing some stuff in mice. And here you can see 
where the, uh, where the tumor is located. And with pretty good clarity, you can begin to see the borders of the tumor and the uptake. And we did quite a bit of work on this. Now, I want to show you the same case. So this is what the operation looks like now. So on the left is that exact same scene as if we had put in the endoscope. And on the right, you can begin to see how this becomes a very different operation in terms of localizing these nodules. And so the first take-home message I want to get as you watch this video is one application of this is localization, finding small nodules. So as you put the camera in right there, you can begin to see where the tumor is. Now, you have to, people ask me about this. Now, there's a blood vessel here, so we still had background issues. It's not a perfect field, and I, I want to point that out. But you can begin to see that it makes a big difference if we can localize that nodule without having to open that patient. So what we did was we wedged this nodule. We didn't do a segment. We didn't do a lobe. It was a 6-millimeter nodule. If I didn't have this, I would have to make an incision. I'd either have to do a segment, a gigantic wedge. I wouldn't even be sure I had a great margin. But now with intraoperative imaging, right there on the Mayo stand in the OR, I can look at my margin. And here's a ruler. So not only was I a, able to avoid an, a, a thoracotomy or a minimally invasive incision, uh, I was able to make two ports, take this out, and confirm my margin in the OR. So one of the take-homes is that intraoperative imaging, I think, will make a dent in the way we localize small nodules. Um, and uh, by the way, I did freeze this. Um, they, pathologists would not call it. Uh, uh, they called it atypical cells. They were, it was too small for them. To, they didn't want to make any more cuts. But in the case was terminated, the um, final pathology was adenocarcinoma. And we do confirm that these are all folate receptor alpha um, uh, 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 when we analyze the data. So a, a couple uh, concepts is, one, the size of the tumor doesn't matter. Optical imaging is, is superb. It can even get down to, we just published a paper, we have seen less than one millimeter nodule. Their smallest nodule that we found is 0 0.7 millimeters. So um, this is, uh, you know, we're talking about extraordinarily small nodules. The size is not important. What matters is how deep the nodule is. So the deeper you get into the lung, the harder it's going to see. And that makes sense. This is optical. There's no radiation. It's safe to everybody involved. But the deeper and deeper it gets, it's going to be harder and harder uh, to see. Now, the next concept, we talked about the four challenges. I talked about localization. The second big challenge is surgical margins. How are you sure at the end of the operation that you've completely resected the tumor? And so I'll give you another example. Here's a woman. She came in. She had this small nodule. Again, I show the CAT scan. Uh, for the uh, for uh, the disbelievers, but it, it was an extraordinarily small uh, peripheral nodule. And again, you can see that on the left is what you would typically see if you were doing this operation uh, without near-infrared imaging, and here's on the right. Now, again, I put in my camera, and I, here's my retractor sort of pulling the lung over, uh, and there is the tumor. Now, this is only a centimeter across, this, this grasper, this bow, the, and so I've grasped the, uh, the nodule. I've pulled it up. can't even feel this. It's so small. And you can actually confirm that you have the nodule in your grasper using this. Now, the reason I show this video is because as I was coming in with the stapler, ignore this. This is actually, again, you get reflection off any metal. 
And as I was doing this, and I didn't stage this, this nodule slipped out of my margin, out of my, my grasper. And I didn't appreciate it at the moment because, again, you get a lot of reflection in the OR. But one of the beautiful things about this technology is how valuable it is on the back table. So the question is, do I have a positive margin? And here it is. I was cutting this thing on the back table, and as I cut through it, here you can see it looks like I have a margin from here to here, but if you look at it here, right there, it looks like I cut pretty close to the tumor. And one of the big endpoints that we're finding in our phase two clinical trial right now is if on the back table you have fluorescence within five millimeters of your staple line, you probably have a positive margin. And now the final pathology on this is the lesion was less than one millimeter from the staple line. So, so this was the second big application that we're finding for lung cancer. So first was the localization and two was the surgical margin. So it's extremely ha uh, helpful for patients who are not getting a lobectomy, for a patient with a bad COBD, patients who we would typically turn down because they, they can't afford to get a uh, lobectomy, or patients who um, you just want to do something quick and easy for a ground glass opacity. It's great for identifying surgical margins for sublobar resections, whether it's a wedge or a segment. And it's extremely, it's much more accurate on the Mayo stand than it is actually in the patient, and it's very quick and very rapid. Third concept is this concept of frozen section pathology. So what we did is we said, well, if it's that specific, can we become better than the pathologist? Can we become better than the, the pathologist in identifying which are cancer or non-cancer for small lesions? Our goal here is not, and people say this, well, are you trying to put pathology out of business? No, we're not trying to put pathology out of business, but we're trying to act as an adjuvant to help uh, pathologist. So we did a simple trial. We took, um, first let me just show you this real quick. So here is a patient. He has a left lower lobe nodule and it was a PET positive. And when we resected it uh, and used the near infrared, it was fluorescent. So based on the specificity of folate receptor for uh, lung adenocarcinomas, we predicted right down in there this is going to be a lung adenocarcinoma. And true enough, this was a lung adenocarcinoma. Here's another example, also left lower lobe, also PET positive. What is it? Not fluorescent. Therefore, we can tell right then and there, this is not a lung adenocarcinoma. And true enough, this was an unknown, and this turned out to be metastatic renal cell adenocarcinoma. Third example, again, left lower lobe nodule. Looks like a similar case. Also PET positive. What is it? All right, so it's fluorescent. So you don't even need to be a surgeon anymore. If you're in the OR and this thing is fluorescing, you know this is a lung adenocarcinoma. True enough, this is a lung adenocarcinoma. So we decided to do a study. We took 30 patients and we said, let's do an optical biopsy. We'll pull the nodule out, we'll cut it in half. It's fluorescing, it's lung adenocarcinoma. If it's not, it's, it's not a lung adenocarcinoma. We found 19 of the cases were fluorescent, 11 were not. Therefore, we said 19 were uh, pulling the adenocarcinomas. Uh, and 11 were uh, either, it turned out to be either benign or other lung cancers or metastatic disease. And now we compared it to the pathologist, and we had two good, we have two superb lung pathologists uh, who were there, one, and they, we did a frozen section. They called 13 of the 30 lung adenocarcinomas. They said there were eight cancers. They couldn't tell what it was from. They said six were benign, two metastatic renal cells, and one lung cancer. So 
adding this, this approach of intraoperative optical imaging was actually helping make a decision on what these nodules were. Now, this took us two minutes to do. So this was, you know, we would take the, we would do a wedge, we would look at it in the back table, we would make a decision, and we would ship it up to pathology. Frozen section took 26 minutes on average. The, we published this and uh, presented this at the American, um, at the, uh, American Surge Call. We had 100% positive predictive value in this. And it's interesting if you look at some of these um, little vignettes. So in one case, we called it an adenocarcinoma based on the uh, optical biopsy. The pathologist said it was a squamous cell. It wouldn't have changed pathology. Both uh, The uh, management, both of them would have gone a lobectomy. We had another patient who we was fluorescent. We called it an adenocarcinoma. The pathologist said it was not cancer. This turned out to be, of course, a lung adenocarcinoma. It was fluorescent. This patient was sent home, came back. When they found out that it was a lung adenocarcinoma, the patient had to come back. We had to do a second operation six weeks later. The cost of the hospital was $40,000 for this. And a simple check with our imaging machine would have, at that moment, told us what to do. We had this happen again. This was actually our 29th patient, adenocarcinoma. We were suspicious. By this point, I trusted our system. I went ahead and did a lobectomy, uh, and uh, it came back as a lung adenocarcinoma. So the key point here, I want to make sure people, the take-home is, if the tumor glows, it's a lung adenocarcinoma. If it doesn't glow, we just follow the standard of care. We're not saying it's not a lung. It may be a squamous cell carcinoma, maybe another type of cancer, but the point is that it does help and as more dyes come out and more targeting the EGFR, et cetera, for squamous cell, we're going to have a whole compendium or choices on these. The, third, the last concept is, so we talked about localization, margins, pathology. I want to talk about METs. So here's a case. She's a 52-year-old woman. She um, was a young woman. She had a large 8-centimeter left upper lobe tumor. She had pre-op chemo radiation. I show the scan very slowly because I want you to, we of course all see the left upper lobe lung cancer here, but I want you to look at the lower lobe. The lower lobe looks pristine. These are one millimeter CAT scans. Uh, and the CAT scan, there is no evidence of any nodule, not even a ground glass opacity uh, that you would typically pick out. So it looks like all I need to do is go in and do a left upper lobe. All right, so I'm going to orient you for the next uh, video. The left will be the left upper lobe, the right will be the left lower lobe, and the fissure you'll see in the middle. So as soon as I got in, the first thing that happened, even before I started my dissection, I just started working on the fissure, and there, I could see right then and there these mets. So, you know, by this point, we're pretty confident about our system. It's glowing. It got the folate tracer. Uh, I couldn't feel this. This was pretty microscopic. I had the laser power turned all the way up. You could see that we had a lot of reflection on that case. And we were able to wedge it out. And here you can see when I cut into it, this is, you can compare it to my thumb. This is a tiny little, I mean, compared to my thumb, this is a tiny little uh, nodule that we found. Now this thing, of course, turns out to be, we, we, after we did the operation, it turned out to be clean, but this turned out to be adenocarcinoma. So this, this was a metastatic lesion, wasn't located on any other imaging. This is one of those typical cases that, you know, you, you, you come out of the OR, you tell the family everything went great, I got your whole cancer out, you're going to be fine. 
Uh, six months later, they got a new met in their left lower lobe. And this was, this was there the whole time. And here you can see it's just that there's below the detection of a one millimeter CAT scan. This doesn't happen very often. I, 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 this is a rare event, uh, especially as CAT scans are getting better and better. And, and, but when it does happen, these are game changers for people. So I wanted to skip this. I wanted to give a couple more quick examples of um, some applications. So I talk about lung cancer and the four big challenges in lung cancer. I want to talk to you very quickly about another disease. Uh, I have a large practice actually in thymomas. They're, they're not a common disease, but actually we, we happen to have a big thymoma center, and, and therefore I see a lot of these patients that come in through the, uh, through the um, oncologist. In thymomas, the standard of care right now is essentially most patients get surgery, you remove it, and then you give post-op radiation. And uh, we give radiation because local recurrence at the margins can be a big problem for these patients. And radiation really does work for thymomas. They're radiosensitive, improves survival. The problem with radiation in the chest is that the radiation is esophagitis, pneumonitis, and then you really do accelerate coronary artery disease. So the patients come in, they get the infusion, um, by the way, for this, I want to talk to you. This is uh, ICG. With all this data, by the way, it's going to be ICG now. So this is just high-dose ICG, fluorescent, non-targeted uh, particles. You could start doing this tomorrow. There, there's no patent on this. There's, this is just uh, a generic uh, uh, fluorophores. We took 40 patients, and we said 20 patients will get surgery, 20 patients will get surgery uh, in intraoperative imaging. And uh, so they were randomized. The only thing was that if the tumors were greater than 5 centimeters, I typically do an open sternotomy, and if they're less than 5 centimeters, I do it robotically. That's just the way I, I, I've practiced. So this woman came in. She had a, a very central tumor. And the biggest thing for us, of course, is making sure that we preserve the phrenic nerve. So here you can see I'm, I'm starting the sternotomy. And as you go in, here you can see the ugly-looking tumor, and here you can see I'm pointing out to the phrenic nerve. So the beautiful thing about using near-infrared imaging is the around nerves, we get no um, background. Nerves really don't have a lot of near-infrared signal. So here you can see I can actually isolate the nerve right off of this. And here you can see where I'm actually using the camera to make sure that I have a birth, uh, a wide birth on this nerve. And actually, on this woman, we were able to preserve her nerve. And we also do this robotically. So this is the, the again, this is a thymoma. And here you can see how we can use the robot, the Da Vinci system, to dissect these out. And the key part here is making sure that we've completely lifted this off the pericardium. And here you can see the border of the tumor. So here's the tumor on the back table. So here you can see as we begin to pull out specimens, as we're pulling out specimens, we can be sure we know what's cancer and what's not. So in this study, we had 20 patients in each group. There was a difference in the number of people who were done either robotically or open. And the first main result, 
In 16 cases, the surgeon said at the end of the case he modified his resection because of something he saw with intraoperative imaging. So he subjectively felt that intraoperative imaging made him see something that made him either change the, 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 the width of the operation or, or his resection of the phrenic nerve. In six cases, the surgeon left the phrenic nerve because he felt there was no fluorescence at all at the end of the case on the nerve. Now, the pathologist did a comparison. We compared the margins, whether you used near-infrared imaging or didn't, and the surgeons who used near-infrared imaging had at least a one-centimeter margin on average, whereas if you didn't use near-infrared imaging, the typical margin was only four millimeters. On three of the control patients, there was a positive margin. So here's another example of a cancer that typically most people with thymomas do pretty well. Most of the, the survival is upwards of 90%. But a little bit of manipulation makes the survival a little bit better. Maybe, maybe these patients don't need postoperative radiation. If we can get to the point that we're, we can be clear that we've cleared the disease off the phrenic nerve, the pericardium is clean, there's no residual disease, then maybe the next study would be to see can we eliminate radiation therapy. So... Um, I will finish with one more quick example. This is malignant mesothelioma. We have the Philadelphia ship, but the shipyards are down in Philadelphia. Therefore, there was a lot of expo exposure to asbestos. Uh, and so one of, the, uh, one of the largest parts of my practice, actually, is malignant mesothelioma. It's a devastating disease. The survival is only eight months. People get um, it's less than one-year median survival. People typically get surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation. The biggest disease is making sure at the end of the operation you've... Uh, uh, removed all residual disease. This is not a curative operation. It is really a debulking or cytoreductive operation, but removing the big nodules can make a big difference. So we took 22 patients uh, who had bisoprolin malignant uh, pleural mesothelioma. The way the trial was done, the, surgeons would, the, the, op the surgeon would first do the operation to the best of the ability. The surgeon, uh, the resident, the fellow, everybody would be happy that the operation was done well, that there's no residual disease, and then the camera would be rolled in we would turn on the camera, and we would see how often the surgeon left the nodule. And again, this is a debulking operation. So this is an example of a 67-year-old gentleman. He had uh, mesothelioma. He had an implant here. He had thickening along the pleura. And this is what it would look like. We would, again, this is endosine in green, by the way. This is not a targeted tracer. Yeah, as you begin to pull out the pleura, you can see the studding of the pleura, and here you can see uh, the fluorescence. And you can see with how much detail and clarity as you pull up the pleura, you can see where the nodules are. Now, here you can see, uh, again, compared to my thumb, uh, how small this nodule is. So, this is the view. Surgeon's done. This is my partner. Uh, he completed the case, and he said, he... he he, he was a, actually a disbeliever on this technology for the longest time, uh, and he does mesothelioma uh, work too. And he was looking in this area, and he says, I'm done. There's nothing left. You can see the bone. And right there, buried between two uh, ribs, uh, was a small nodule he left behind. <clears throat> And here you can see uh, uh, with the finger uh, and comparing to the finger how small this nodule was. So in this study, um, 
of the 22 patients, 16 out of the 22 patients, we found at least a 5-millimeter nodule left behind in the patient uh, that we would have uh, otherwise missed. So I want to tell you a little bit now uh, about how this is translated at uh, Penn. So we made a very compelling case. I was telling you about this this morning. When I went to the CEO of the health system. I made a very compelling case. Uh, and the cancer center director went, went with me, actually, uh, about why we should think about doing this uh, on a broader scale in every surgical subspecialty that does cancer. Um, and the, the, the CEO brought in, we started a center at Penn. It's called the Center for Precision Surgery. Um, and a couple of people, Eric Henderson, I know, uh, is uh, going to be speaking um, uh, at this uh, meeting in three weeks. So this idea of people coming into the center, we do um, 14 different cancer types. We have 23 different types of uh, clinical trials with different tracers. And they get their trace. They come to a clinical center. They get their tracer. Then they roll over, and, and then they get their operation. We have a, a, a slew of cameras that the health system came in and bought for us, which allows us uh, to image. So we started this uh, in March of 2016. Uh, we, have a, we, we have grown out to a big center. There's 13 surgeons in the center. And we actually just did, I, I was telling you, that as of a, couple, a week ago, we just did our 893rd patient. So we've been able to draw patients from all over the country who are interested in intraoperative imaging. It's amazing how people are learning about this. We've had people as far as Saudi Arabia, Nebraska, uh, California coming in for this concept of um, getting a dye before the surgery to make the surgery just a little bit better. These are all clinical trials. And so my belief is a couple things. One, I think we're really just at the tip of the iceberg. If you look at what um, was said 20 years ago in 1998, it was controversial, but a recurring concept is that an optical biopsy was envisioned that diagnosis based on in situ optical measurements could be performed without tissue removal for a histopathological exam, uh, examination focusing on this probable unachievable goal. That's 20 years ago. And it was by Brian Wilson. So Brian Wilson is, is one of the big gurus in photodynamic therapy. I'm sure you know him. Uh, you know, we are really beginning to change the way surgery is practiced. I think new tools exist, nanotechnology, new targets, genomics, gene therapy. Um, and I do believe intraoperative imaging is not going to cure every cancer, but it's going to find a place. If I make a prediction where we're going to be in about five to seven years, when I get cancer, or my, somebody in my family gets cancer, you're going to come down and you're going to get a bag held. And it's not a bag hung and given, given intravenously. It's probably not going to be one tracer, I believe. We made some uh, uh, models. We think that you're probably going to need six tracers. With six tracers, six different targets, you probably can capture about 98% of all tumors. There'll be enough that you can then roll back, you get your prostate in out, your breast cancer, your breast lump, whatever it is, and the tumor will fluoresce. And it may make the, it won't hurt the operation, but it may make the operation slightly better. So, um, I do believe that the, the future of cancer will change. This is my lab. I, again, thank you very much for the invitation. It's been great to be back at Dartmouth. I do want to leave. We have 10 minutes. I want to leave 10 minutes for questions.
So what's, um, what is your positive monitoring when you're doing detections for lung cancer? And, uh, you know, so adiposs on the lung. And when you use your fluorescent imaging, uh, and have you done that in a randomized trial? Have you shown that you can decrease your positive marking rate? So that's the first question. And then the second is, is how small cancers can you detect with this? Because you're, you're a really good surgeon. You know, you're not going to leave gross tumor behind. You're going to steal that specimen when you take it out, you know, and, and stuff. So you're going to have to detect tumors that are less than a millimeter in, you know, diameter. And is fluorescence good enough to do that? Yeah. So, and I, and I think I'm happy you asked that question because you raised something that I really want to get across. So it's not going to be the solution to every problem. For example, in, in, in lung cancer, we rarely have a positive margin on a lobectomy. It just doesn't happen. I mean, you've got a three-centimeter left over the tumor. You're not going to have a positive margin. But if you're doing a sub-segmental uh, sub resection, a segmentectomy, a wedge, yeah, the, the positive margin rate goes up pretty significantly. So in the folate trial that we're going, that's going on right now, it's a phase two trial. Uh, we are uh, at five sites uh, in um, uh, Cleveland Clinic and the Anderson University of Pittsburgh BI in Penn. Um, we are limiting the, those, that trial to wedges or, or segmentectomies because the positive margin rate on the segmentectomies and the wedges was um, was out of uh, so out of the sixty-ish, seventy-ish patients, we've already had eight. So you know it's there. It, it's there. It, it, for a lobectomy, it was almost negligible. Now uh, the thing about the positive margins, by the way, I should mention is where we are finding it valuable is for brain tumors. So uh, John Lee um, is one of the neurosurgeons. He's done over 150 patients using this high-dose indocinin green. Um, and he find, routinely finds brain tumors that when he's completed looking at the bed from the, either the glioma uh, or meningioma or whatever tumors he's taking out, he will find residual cancer in the margins. Now, your next question may be, well, does it matter if you take out every little piece of glioma? I don't know. He tells me he's not sure it's going to change the dial because the patients, unfortunately, are still going to die in four months. But at the end of the operation, he feels like he gets a better gross resection, and B, he walks away with a better sense of how much disease is left. So that's what he's getting, that's how the value he's getting for it. Now, um, in terms of, uh, I'm sorry, your second question was about um, how small. Oh, yeah, how small. So, so it depends. If you're on the surface, you can see extraordinarily small. We found a 0.7 millimeter nodule, not one, less than a millimeter. If you're in laboratory conditions looking at a mouse, we can see down to 300, 400 cancer cells. If you're looking at a, a four millimeter ground glass opacity or a DCIS buried uh, a centimeter deep into the breast, you're not going to see it. This is optical imaging. Uh, and, and keep that uh, in mind because there's, there's also the flip side. There's no radiation safe to all the personnel you got to just know the limitations of this technology. But on the other hand, let's pretend you're doing a, a lumpectomy. You've done your lumpectomy, and now you're looking at the surface of the, of the cavity to see if the breast uh, adipose tissue that you've left behind is clean. There it's going to work. Breast cancer is positive? For the sanguine. Yeah. So you talked about folate uh, targeting, and I don't know what's the name of that. Yeah, I bounced around a little bit. So let me just clarify. So we have several cases. So the, I have the folate 
the, we, ha we had four tracers. So the endosine in green is the non-targeted near-infrared dye using the EPR. We had the, the first round, which was the optical biopsy trial, which was a folate fluorescine. We eventually left it because the depth of penetration wasn't very good. We now are on the folate near-infrared dye. That's the phase two clinical trial I was telling you about. We also have coming up the CEA uh, trial the, uh, that's coming up for colon cancer. And we're just getting into the bev bevacizumab. So there is a anti-VEGF receptor targeted dye uh, that we're looking exploring for head and neck and, and issues like that. So the, the number of dyes, uh, we, I was trying to convince uh, Dr. Pogue that maybe he'll let us use his anti-EGFR uh, dye when it's ready to come. So, you know, we, we, um, I don't know which dye is going to land if you ask me where to predict in five or ten years. I don't know. I think it's going to be a combo. Um, there's a lot of kinks to be hammered out. As you know. Great talk. Thank you. Um, I had a question in terms of just kind of expanding that dye count concept. Do you see it more specifically for lung cancer as you give a dye uh, preoperatively and then you look to see for residual, or do you see it going in the direction of you take out your specimen and send it to frozen, and then once you, or once you have an idea of what it is, using that specific tracer to see if you have any residual components of disease there? Yeah, that's a good question. When we started, we were doing the first way, which you mentioned. What we found now, to be honest, putting in the camera, unless we're having a hard time finding it, but let's pretend we found it, go in, there's no point in using the near-infrared. Once you know where it is, you know where it is. And if you put the stapler in, the reflection ruins the view. So we just do our wedge or segment or lobectomy. When we're done, my personally, I find the best value is scanning the cavity before I send the specimen off. So right then, while the specimen is still oriented, I kind of have a sense where I am. I check my staple lines. I check the parenchyma. I check, I check around to make sure I got a good clean. So, so that's my first real value is checking when I think I've done the best job I can. The second value is the back table. So I just take my endoscope out, I put it on the Mayo stand, and I start looking at my margins. Uh, if I have a close margin, um, I, while the specimen is still there, I can reorient it, I know where to go, I may even put a stitch in the staple line, and I may just take an extra margin. So that's where I'm finding uh, the most value, towards the end of the case. Yes. Very, very nice presentation. In your earlier uh, slides, you showed a nonspecific uh, staining, in that particular case of a, of a blood vessel. Have you been able to uh, uh, increase the efficiency and so to reduce false positives in what you're looking at? Yeah, so the way to do it would be the obvious, you know, increase the time, tell the patients. So right now we do it in the pre-op holding area. We give the patients a dye. If we give it the day before, um, then, then a lot of the background is gone. Uh, but it's sometimes hard to get patients to come the day before, so, and it's not too bad. We have enough of a sense, and again, we have our intuition to know where to cut. Um, I think that it's much harder on a breast cancer trial where it's a lumpectomy. Patients just don't want to come the day before. I'll be honest, for lung cancer, if you tell them they have lung cancer, almost everybody will say, I'll come the day before, no problem. So uh, we have got to continue to work as a field, and, and Brian Pope's a big advocate of this, and, and he's talked at the World, uh, World Molecular Imaging Congress. He was at the FDA. I was there with him a few weeks ago. You know, we, we do not have all the pharmacokinetics worked out yet. So, um, again, we are at the tip of the iceberg, a lot of work to be done. Um, so I, I, there's no doubt we can optimize this better. Yep. 
we've been able to show that the improved receptions are decreasing recurrence or affecting decreasing price? Yes, it's a great question. Another topic that's come up at the FDA is what should our clinical endpoints be? So I can say a few uh, vignettes. So for sarcoma. For sarcoma, what we have found that we can find in about 50% of the cases, we can find a two or three millimeter extra nodule uh, in the idiopulmonary mastectomies. So we go in, we take out the, the big two centimeter ligular, you know, met. We will, about 50% of the time, find a two or three millimeter extra nodule. The FDA is okay with that. With that is they will use that as a surrogate for decreased local recurrence uh, or decreased progression-free survival. We have not been held by the FDA to show decreased uh, improved survival uh, or any of these uh, uh, parameters. Um, I think there's enough body of literature in, in surgery to show that, you know, finding more helps. If that... If the FDA comes back to us and tells us we have to do that, this may not, this will be very hard because you would need a lot of money. Right now, there's a lot of mom and pop shops like Dr. Pogue developed his technology. We developed our technology who can pull it off without a lot of companies. Uh, but if we start to get to the point where we need to do those bigger trials, it's going to be hard. Because a lot of these patients get chemo and radiation anyway. Right. Hey. David Finley. Yeah, um, hey. Sure. Very nice talk. Um, so the VATS and open data doesn't support uh, improved survival associated with resection of events less than five millimeters in size. Yeah, so... So I, I would argue that in situations where you're finding an extra three millimeter nodule, you know... But that's for lung cancer. I'm talking about for... So, so, the, so the PEDS data, I mean, Laquaglia showed this, because he argued specifically that you should be doing a thoracotomy because you can find more than you can find in a CT scan. And then <laughs> Roger Flores came in and said, well, I'm going to do a VATS, and actually showed that at 10 years, yeah. there was no difference in survival, VATS versus open. So we, you know, when we presented our data, we had the same sort of comments at the AATS. I don't know if you were there. We presented in May. Uh, you know, Sir Folio stood up, and he says, well, every patient should get a sternotomy, and you should do bimanual palpation in both lungs. And the controversy, I agree, there's a lot of controversy. Does it help to remove every, every MET? Uh, should we do bimanual? Should we do that? Should we do... Uh, I can say a few comments just on my personal experience from having done our trial. You know what the biggest gain I felt like I was getting out of this was if I went in on an 18-year-old kid, one tumor met, wedged it out, and I found a two-millimeter met, all of a sudden, the medical oncologist took that case a lot more seriously. They were sometimes they were starting to start those patients on chemo, even though in the typical the patient you said, okay, let's wait and see. You tell the patient everything's fine. Now you're having a more realistic conversation with that patient. You're telling them, look, we had two nodules. We thought you had one. You may have more. Should we start chemo? I think where we're going to get the benefit is, and it's sort of what I said at the opening. It's the information gained. It's that accurate staging. So. All, everything that we do in surgery doesn't necessarily amount to just doing a complete resection, but it's the added knowledge of the staging that we provide to the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, uh, that helps move the dial. So um, every clinical scenario has to be worked out in a clinical trial. Um, I think we now have a tool that we can add on to everything else we already do, whether it's robotics, vats, but nothing else is really changing outcomes. This may change outcomes, and the trials have to be done.
It's not going to solve every problem. It may solve some. And that's what I'd argue is that my concern is, is that you got an oncologist that started getting excited about things and did chemotherapy yeah. earlier. And now what we're doing is we're giving more chemo, but we're not having any, we're not changing the needle in terms of their survival benefit. I don't know the answer to that. You're right. You're right. And we have to, as we as the academic community, and I say this quite a bit, and we've talked about this, as the academic community begins to come up with these issues, that we begin to see things that we never saw before, we have to be good stewards of the technology. We have to do trials, and we have to say, does it add anything or not? When I got my start, I did a lot of stuff in gene therapy. That was where I was in immunology in my training, and everybody thought gene therapy was going to cure cancer. It was going to be all done. And what we have found, it helps in very isolated situations. There's a few uh, uh, cancers here and there that it's, it's moved the dial. And I think that's what's going to happen with intraoperative imaging. I think we have a great new technology. I'm not sure where it's going to land. I'm not sure it's going to help every cancer. You know, is it going to help in breast cancer where, you know, where the truth of the matter is, even if you have a positive margin, all those women these days that lumpectomies are getting radiation anyway. They're sterilizing the breast. So are we, are getting every little bit, every little bit of DCIS, is it, I don't know. I just don't know. Thymomas, I can show you my thymoma data. The cure rate's already 90, 95%. Are we going to move the dial by having less margin? Don't know. Don't know. But maybe we don't need radiation. So, good question. You know, this is probably a great time to end. I just respect what we thought. <laughs> Sunil, thanks very much. Thanks for having me.